Hi, listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by Dougie Center, the National Grief Center for Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. If you've been living with grief for a while now, have you ever felt yourself feeling nostalgic for the early days? Your immediate response might be, absolutely not, no way. You might even find yourself using stronger language to communicate that hard no. For some, though, there can be a wish to feel some aspects of that early grief again, a time when they felt the closest to their person, when the emotions were so intense and all-encompassing, when people were reaching out every day, when, depending on your situation, you may have lived in a bit of a liminal space, in between the world you shared with your person and the world that would come after. Please don't hear this as a glowing review of grief. But for today's guest, Jeff Porter, the hours and days and weeks after Claire, his beloved wife of 25 years, died of an aneurysm, were a time of altered perception, a time that he knew was limited but meaningful. During this time, Jeff started writing what would become his memoir, Planet Claire, Sweet for Cello and Sad-Eyed Lovers. Jeff and I talk about why he and Claire who were really opposite in some ways, were such a great match, about the big nothing he faced in living without Claire, and about what it meant for him to normalize in grief. Jeff, thank you so much for joining me for Grief Out Loud. Uh, well, thanks. Thanks for talking with me. I'm looking forward to this. So tell us a little bit about your wife, Claire. What was it about her that made her such a good match for you for the over 25 years that you were together? Uh, Well, Claire and I were really quite, quite different people. And so it was a bit of a surprise that uh, um, we evolved this really, really tight relationship. Um, We had a very, very deep intuitive connection. We, We understood things about one another and also about the world in an unstated kind of way. And that's, uh, and that, that's sort of unique. I mean, so we didn't have to really talk that much, but we together, but we understood what one another was thinking. And, and that made for a rich kind of uh, companionship. So the more time we spent together, the greater the sense of belonging. And I really, really like that. Uh, that sense that, that Claire was, that Claire was home and that I, you know, would like to think that I was home for her too. Um, of course. And that's what, you know, when you lose someone like that, that's that's part of the shock and the pain is you lose that sense of home. Um, Claire was also a very, very grounded person. She, you know, she was a really uh, um, classy scholar. She's a medieval scholar and she was quite good at her job and she was an excellent college teacher. And she was very, very well grounded, much more than me. So I felt somewhat free to uh, sort of chase my imaginings and I often would. And I really, not before being with her, I, I could I do that? Because, you know, then I'd, I'd sense that, well, you know, I could, I could get lost doing this or get in trouble. 
uh, letting my imagination go. But with with Claire, I could kind of I I grew to sort of let my imagination go, and I could always count on her to reel me back in when I wandered too far. That was really that was kind of precious. And I think if I could speak for her, I think from uh, her point of view, she understood she was a very cautious woman. You know, very, very responsible, cautious woman, and I wasn't. <laughs> and so, <laughs> I, th- I think she liked being with someone who was, you know, less so, who was a little wild and uh, liked taking risks. I'm not that way now, unfortunately. But back when we were first together, I, I was pretty wild. I wasn't a bad boy by any means, but I was, I was fairly wild, and I think she really, I think she liked that. It's a cliche. We complimented each other well. But, you know, the actual experience of that is so much more profound. Um, we, 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 had this, we had this bond that was based on this kind of unstated way of, of knowing one another and, and the world together. And we shared this great sense of irony, which is, uh, I took it for granted back then, but I, I don't think you can't, I don't think I should anymore. And so, you know, we had this great sort of originary story together. We, before we got married, we, we bought a TV uh, and this is, I think this is, this is in the book. Uh, it's a story about watching Twin Peaks together. And it's kind of a, it, it's a pretty amusing allegory of, of actually making a commitment before we could actually really think about getting married. We bought a big TV together. <laughs> and and, <laughs> and this was back in the day when the TVs were really, really kind of large. They weren't flat. And neither of us had watched TV in ages. So, you know, we pretty much just... Uh, bought books, read books, took walks and that sort of thing. And suddenly we were thinking about bringing a TV into our small apartment and we lived in separate apartments and I bought the TV and uh, we bought the TV together, which was very, very scary. We were in a big box store. We had never done that before. And so we did this. Um, It was the first thing we ever bought together and we bought it for the sole purpose of watching the debut of Twin Peaks. And the, the, the experience of watching Twin Peaks together was such a kind of confirmation of that deep intuitive connection we had. And that also that, that, you know, that sense of irony that kind of bound us together. It's, it's interesting to me, Jeff, because, you know, you talked about how the relationship with you and Claire, there was such a deep understanding, such an intuitive understanding that you didn't need to always express yourselves verbally to understand one another. And then you've written in the book, Planet Claire, that after when Claire, you know, had the brain aneurysm and was in the hospital, and then also when after she died, that you talked to her constantly. And that's just an interesting dichotomy to me. Yeah, right. So, I mean, we, you know, we didn't do that. (laughs) We didn't do that kind of uh, talking in life. It was pretty kind of practical. You know, what should we eat tonight? And um, do you want to go see a movie? Our discourse was really, really kind of practical, and you wouldn't think for for a couple of academic types who were traveling really far and wide in their in their work, they would be so how should I say it uncolorful, <laughs> mundane, <laughs> you know, very mundane, yeah, yeah, very, very <laughs> mundane. And so uh, this happened not as a it was not a literary gesture on my part when I began talking to her. It was you know I was just I was panicking, I was in terror, and so. It just came out and then I never stopped. And I think that, you know, the loss of that intuitive partner required this sort of outreach on my part. And so I had to speak out now because, you know, my my intuitive partner was no longer there and I had to fill in that empty space with my babble. 
<laughs> and Jeff, I know you and Claire had been on a vacation and you return from vacation and then she has this brain aneurysm and the aneurysm and the death were so sudden. And I wonder what did the suddenness of that mean for you? Um, well, it's kind of like, you know, it's being hit by a train. I'm, re- I'm honestly, I really did feel like I was destroyed by, by something large and fast, you know, the way a train is unstoppable and it comes really, really fast. Um, it was so unimaginably disruptive. I mean, I was pretty much, my life was turned upside down. And the fact that I wasn't given a chance to build a place in my mind where I could prepare for the loss of Claire was really the thing that was so kind of disruptive. If your partner goes into hospice or if your partner has some kind of long illness, which is probably not the only way to die, but uh, you know it happens quite often, you, you build a place inside of your mind and your heart where you actually you do your your exercises to prepare for the loss of your partner. And so there was no preparation for this. And so her death was so radical. I had, I had to rethink everything I knew, everything that, you know, I mean, it just went out the window. I mean, it sounds Shakespearean, but um, when that happens, you know, Shakespeare becomes very, very true and very, very relevant. Um, everything I knew just didn't work anymore. And I, had to rethink everything. And it's, I think, partly why I wrote Planet Claire is I had to re- rethink things. Mm. And the conversations I've had with people who, you know, have had someone die very suddenly, unexpectedly, and had someone die after a long illness, that that sense that nothing works anymore seems to hold true for many people. And I wonder, some of the folks I've talked to when they've had a long period of time of perhaps, I appreciate that image of like building a place in their mind of where they think they're going to have to go one day. And then so much of their life has been wrapped up in caring for this person that once they die, they have to rework their entire identity and purpose. And like, how do I do the day the day now with this person's absence. So yeah, just an interesting reflection for me over the years of the difference in the in what it's like to have someone die suddenly or after a long term illness, and then how so much of the reaction once they have died can feel very similar. You've also you wrote in the book about how grief really altered your state of mind, that part of you left in a way. And I just wonder if you could describe that for us. You know, I think that the, you know, the book in a way is is both a means of trying to come to terms with grief and, and understanding it. I mean, grief was the, the grief was very, very interesting. I could feel it grow inside of me. It was almost like a sci, sci, science fiction event. Mm. You know, I could feel something inside of me. I mean, it was kind of, uh, it was sort of an immaterial thing, but sometimes it felt like it was much more material. I could feel it making making sounds. I could feel it moving around. It could change shape. And, you know, there's, uh, throughout the book, I, ex- I explore some different images and metaphors for this, for this sense of grief. I, I, you know, I think when anyone grieves, they, 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 the first thing they do is, is they realize that they're interfacing with death, with the loss of their partner, um, through grief, and it's kind of like an operating system that doesn't make any sense, and it never really does. I can't say having written the book and having felt some sense of, of fulfillment in understanding my relationship to grief and death, I, I, I can still say that I don't understand grief, mm. and I don't understand. <laughs> death but you know um i'm still alive to tell the tale 
and so the it was my way of interfacing with uh, with Claire and with her departure was was grief. But you know, it was an operating system to use that metaphor that I didn't quite understand. And so I, people who are grieving become very resourceful and find ways to understand that operating system. For writers, you know, you've got to write. And and so the book for me is one way of understanding the operating system so I could manage it. And I think that's what led me, once I began understanding a little bit about the operating system, I understood that, uh, you know, this sense of this, this rupture inside of my own personality was taking place. And I don't think I would have seen that or explore that had I not really sensed this was was how grief was expressing itself to me or how grief was affecting me and so you know I just did feel like once I kind of got closer to grief that a part of me really did did vacate the scene (laughs) in a a hurry you know it did it did it in a hurry and um, I did see it as a younger a younger kind of self and, you know, I don't know exactly how to make sense of that younger self. Is this the self that that sort of uh, um, um, sat on the sidelines as I evolved into a more adult-like person thanks to being in, in a marriage with Claire? Or is this this, you know, this part of myself that was encouraged by Claire being so grounded to be a little a little more childlike? I'm not really sure. But there was a part of myself that really took off. And the only thing that was sure to me uh, was that it was a younger, a younger version, and that this young, younger version was a little less responsible, and it didn't want to kind of do what um, grief wanted it to do, which mm-hmm. is to kind of you know sit down and take account of oneself, take account of what what's been lost, take account of the past, uh, what was gained, where are you. And what does it mean to be a human being uh, once you factor in the reality of death and loss and all that kind of stuff? So the guy, the, the kid who's called Space Boy um, doesn't have to do that. Space Boy's challenge is just to kind of zip around in outer space and go looking for Claire in some other galaxy. He finds out later, you know, in the book that that comes with its own problems. But um, he's certainly, he's a part of me that doesn't want to do what I'm doing. <laughs> Grieving. <laughs> So it's like by day having to be this responsible adult taking, as you put it, like an accounting of losses and then by writing this other part of you that can live um, outside of that mm, responsibility, I guess, in a way. And Right. Yeah. You know, when you were talking about like, you know, even after writing the book and, and years going by, like still not understanding grief and not understanding death. And I, I sometimes wonder if the the process is really about maybe this inkling or this urge to understand grief. And in the end, it ends up being a learning to understand ourselves in grief. Like that's the knowable part, or at least the aspirational knowing part. And that to, to truly know grief or to truly know death or understanding the, those two things, maybe not possible in any way. Yeah, I, I would certainly agree. And, you know, you're in a position to kind of know quite a bit about grief. Uh, um, having talked to so many people and, and but my own experience would certainly um, agree with, with how you put that. Being in grief is really what this book is about. It's being in grief and, and being in grief requires uh, um, a reckoning, but also a remembering. And I think that, you know, I'm guessing that a lot of folks you've talked to 
talk about talk about their past. There is there is a remembering, and then there there is kind of a reckoning. And I don't think you can have one without the other. And then you know the there is for me there was kind of an acceptance. Uh, I never did have that Job-like feeling. You know, I, I didn't want to rage at the universe because I really couldn't point my finger at any one particular entity and said, you're responsible and I'm going to rage at you for what's happened. I mean, death, you know, I mean, what we call death is unknowable. And, and you know, how can you rage at, at death? And so there, I, I, you know, my experience of grief was to understand how to form some preliminary sense of acceptance that would not discount either the loss or the transformation that was taking place place inside of me, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I love what you said about reckoning and remembering, because I think about that, those two processes happening, parallel, sometimes uh, overlapping, interweaving, and that for many folks, particularly at the beginning, the reckoning is so painful that it almost occludes or uh, blocks the remembering, and that for many people, there's a process over time, as they maybe acclimate to the reckoning, that the remembering can come back online as well. So I hadn't thought about it from those two terms before. So I really appreciate that. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I sort of because I'm a um, uh, something of a memoirist, um, it was easier for me to begin with the remembering and and then use that as a base for trying to reckon. And I mean, you know, the reckoning takes place later in the book. Um, um, uh, once the the remembering has filled the page and, and assumed some kind of order for readers. Yeah, let's talk about the book itself. I mean, you have authored many books. And then this book is memoir-esque, but also very different than the other books that you've written. And you've already talked a little bit about how the, the writing was part of your process, but wondering what it was like to bring grief kind of into your work and your work into grief. Sure. Yeah. Uh, um, big difference. I think in the other books, I'm always, I was flirting with um, either historical or cultural or intellectual ideas and problems and topics. And so, you know, the writing kind of took place in a safe space inside of my head. The idea of being in control was, was, was never in question. Um, and, you know, and so there is that, you know, there's a limitation to that kind of writing because the, 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 the writer, the writer sees as his or her uh, challenge is to, is to establish control over very complicated material and then reach some insights. So that was sort of the normal model that, that lots of folks who kind of do creative writing inside of an academic situation um, will follow. And this was completely different because I had no control and I didn't mind not having any control over what was happening. And the, in fact, the loss of control was something that really, really intrigued me as I was writing. And I, I did my best to um, allow that, that loss of control, which is the reality of, of, of my experience having you know, lost so abruptly uh, um, my, my partner to, to let that play out. Because I think that for readers, that's kind of an important part of grieving is to fall apart, really, to try to make sense of that, not just simply to deny it or to uh, resist it uh, or try to medicate yourself out of it, but to actually let it happen and then try to make some sense of the falling apart. And again, you know, the kind of the split self is a part of that uh, larger process of, of falling apart. 
Um, so that was, you know, that, that was pretty new. And I really, I'll be honest with you. I liked that. Uh, you know, I was very intrigued by that. And I, you know, I tried to make that as authentic as possible throughout the book. As you're, as you're describing this, I was thinking back to earlier in our conversation where you said that you and Claire were such a good complementary match for one another, because you had more of the, the wild side, the less reserved, less controlled side, and that this experience with grief being so out of control almost as though you had a little bit of an imprint of what is it like to to exist in an uncontrolled maybe more wild um environment (laughs) (laughs) not that you built for grief but (laughs) (laughs) right yeah yeah right so yeah you could say that there was kind of uh, uh coming face to face with my true self Speaking of Claire, what do you think she would think of how you navigated the grief of her death? Boy, I, you know, I hate speaking for her. I, I'd like to think that she was um, she was relieved. You know, I think that she, you know if she um, she was watching. Uh, I think her greatest fear would be that um, I would 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 be overwhelmed and fall into despair. And, you know, and I say that because if, if I, you know, I, if I were to put her shoes on and I was in that, you know, that other place looking, looking not down, but looking at Claire in this place, on this plane, I, you know, that would be my great fear is that she would fall into a, a crushing kind of despair. And so, and it was certainly, you know, it's possible and it's, and it's a little seductive to, to fall into despair. And you know, it was it was helpful to be writing a book, and that uh, um, because the book doesn't give you time to indulge that sort of dark state of mind. But the big nothing that you face when you lose your partner and you're really looking at death is 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 really terrifying. And it's um, you know, it seems to me a logical response to that big nothing, the terrible nothing, is despair. And so I think she. She probably was really, really worried, frightened that I would, you know, I would fall into despair and maybe never climb out. So when I think about people who have had someone who was part of their daily life die, you know, Claire, your partner that you had been together for t- over 25 years, and that the daily routine can be so disrupted, and wonder, you know, what was that like early on versus now? Like, how have you adapted your daily routine? Oh, you know, it's so terrible. We, 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 you know, how, how successful and effective we human beings are at normalizing ourselves. And so now I look back almost nostalgically, believe it or not. And um, I mean, I, I was pretty much the grief did this then uh, put me in an alternative state of mind. And so, and I was very aware of that and kind of keen on, on making, you know, registering the world from the point of view as someone who has been turned upside down. Because, you know, after a year, it, it stops and you begin to normalize yourself. And I'm fully renormalized. And um, that's just the way we are as, as human creatures. The grief is there. It never, never goes away. And it's always kind of, it's always changing. But it, during the first year, the grief is so powerful. It really does alter the way that you experience other people, the way that you experience the world. And so I was really kind of fascinated by that. I did sense that um, I didn't have too much time to to kind of record what it's like to see the world through the eyes of someone who was grieving as deeply as I was back then. And again, that's you know that's that's partly 
why the book got written was to find a place for these for these perceptions you know what what i saw you know because i wouldn't be like that and you know unless i lose another person and then you normalize yourself and, and, and you and you can't do that anymore and you're just kind of like you see the world the way that everyone else sees it you you can't take it for granted i mean there, there's early moments for grief or I mean, this sounds terrible, but they are kind of precious because you are in a place in your mind and your heart where you'll never go again. It's it's like someone taking you to another planet and leaving you there for for six weeks, and then they pick you up and they bring you back, and then you know what you saw, um, you'll never see again. Um, you'll just you know you'll 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 you see some sunshine in October and you'll see some uh, um, some rain in April, but you won't see those weird starscapes. You won't see the weird moon dust or whatever else um, is on that on that strange planet. So yeah, and I mean I, I kind of missed that. I didn't expect that, um, but that was something I was kind of keenly aware of um, as as I was trying to figure out how to operate this strange system called grief. I just got a little bit of goosebumps listening to this because I have heard many people talk about almost that nostalgia for the early early days of grief, but from a very different lens of a fear that the further they get from the intensity and the rawness of those initial weeks and days and months, the further they feel from their person. And that is a new, like a whole other level of grief. I hadn't heard about it or thought about it in this way that those early days, uh, we're so altered, our perceptions are altered, things are heightened in a way of, yeah, of actually like appreciating what that meant for us and how we are existing in the world and seeing the world. And it, it almost reminds me, because I've been having this weird sort of guilt nostalgia for the early days of the pandemic, back when we didn't know anything, you know, but there was so much like, we got to figure this out. And we got it, you know, everything was just so heightened. And it, everything was new. And everything right. felt That's different, yeah. and creative and innovative. And now that we're just in like boring old pandemic life, like, blah, yeah, here's how we do it now. I was like, what's wrong with me? And I feel a little like, oh, a little reminiscent of those days of like, wow, we figured so much out in two and a half weeks. And so thank you for the permission to maybe uh, have a bit of that nostalgia. I really appreciate that. Yeah, that's curious. I think, you know, it's a, a physicist, Carlo Rovoli, who just wrote this book on time that was, uh, I think, a bestseller. And it's uh, really interesting. And he talks a lot about entropy and um, the importance of low entropy. Low entropy is what kind of creates the possibility for order and meaning and um, and really creates the possibility for time, even though it's not a universal or an absolute constant. And so low entropy would be those early moments in the pandemic or those early moments um, when you're grieving where um, you begin to organize um, what you're feeling and, and what you're thinking. And I mean, the process of writing a book or, you know, if you are writing a journal or if you're writing letters to your family where you're trying to deal with your grief, all of those efforts are going to um, transform the low entropy into a higher entropy. And when that happens, there's there's a loss. You know, there's a loss of uh, the signal, as uh, information people would say. I'm not sure if that makes any sense, but there is kind of like a pure meaning kind of uh, experiences maybe more unique. It feels, yeah, it feels more original. 
when you're in that low entropy um, state. And we're doomed to kind of transforming those low entropy states into uh, high entropy states. That's the, you know, that's the unfortunate way of the world. The inevitability of it. Yeah. Well, Jeff, I feel like we just had a little bit of a hype conversation about grief. So uh, listeners out there, no way are we saying like, <laughs> yay, grief, but just to understand, like to really appreciate how much it radically shifts who we are and our way of being in the world and the way we see things, the way we hear things, the way we feel things. And it reminds me too, that I've, you know, I've interviewed other authors on the podcast who have written books about their grief. And there's like two categories. Those of you who wrote the book in the moment, as it was unfolding, you know, the the notes and the journaling are happening right then. And then folks who write the book years later as a reflective piece of looking back upon something. And so I've really appreciated that both of those types of me- memoirs and novels and, and other types of book exist, because I think for some folks to be able to touch into like, this is what it feels like as it's unfolding, versus this is what it looks like and feels like with a bit of um, distance and buffer. So thank you for, you know, for harnessing all that what was happening in the moment to, to share that with with me and with other folks who will have the opportunity to read Planet Claire. And, and in that realm, how how can people find the book if they want to connect with you and your other work? Um, let's see the, you know, the book is in the usual place is you can, you can find it of course on Amazon. The publisher has got a nice discount on the book, um, at Akashic books. So you can, um, easily find it there. Um, think there's indie bookstore. I think you can find the book there as well. I have a website, um, lowercase Jeff hyphen Porter at, uh, dot com. And th- there's a list of my books, descriptions of my books, and ways to kind of get my books there too. Also, stuff I make. Um, I I work with film and sound, and so I have some sound pieces and some films on the website as well. Um, there's a way of contacting me um, on that website. So those are those are useful venues. Well, thank you for outlining those and listeners. As always, they'll be in the show notes. You can just click a link. You don't have to scurry to write things down right now. Well, Jeff, thank you. I mean, I really, you know, it was an honor to read your book and just really appreciating our time together and and sort of winding through some different aspects of grief that I wasn't even expecting to talk about today. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jana, for uh, for talking to me and being being interested in the topic. I, I I really enjoyed the conversation. And listeners out there, I say it each and every time, but thank you for being part of our community. The show would not mean anything if you weren't out there tuning in and listening. So please share the show with those that you think might be supported by it. If you want to reach out to me, you can email me at griefoutloud at Dougie, D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G. Uh, that website, D-O-U-G-Y dot is also the best place to learn more about Dougie Center, to access all of our free resources, including all of our past episodes. So thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time. <laughs>